Okay, it's great for us to have uh, Mark Ambley here, and also his wife, Juanita. In Afrikaans, you'd say, Juanita. <laughs> it's awesome to have you guys here. They're from Creation Ministries International, and Mark's originally from Cape Town. And uh, yeah, I, they, their ministries played a massive role in my life. Um, you know, they're not a, like a one-man show, like one guy just having a few ideas and running with it. It's really a, a group of uh, professionals across the world, guys with doctorates, and all of them together walking this road. And I, I remember as a, as a, as a first-year student, second-year student, I came to Christ in Stellenbosch. I was studying engineering, and from my perspective, evolution was a fact. You know, it was just a fact, and I once or twice heard the pastor saying, it's not a fact, and I was like, no, dude, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. But I, I was so afraid to look at the evidence, because I knew instinctively, if evolution is true, the Bible isn't. And I was too afraid, because I knew it would absolutely rock my faith. And, uh, and it has rocked many people's lives, many people across the planet. Their faith have been rocked because of the theory of evolution. And I must say, when I actually started to look at the evidence, it really backed up creation more than did evolution. It so built up my faith. It so, so gave me faith in the scriptures. And that's why we're so excited to have them here this morning to build up your faith, to encourage you. To, to, to cause you to stand stronger in, in, in the Lord. And so I have huge respect for this ministry, for the integrity of the guys part of this ministry. As Shofar, we've been connected with them for, what, 15 years or so. And it's just been awesome. So thank you so much. Thank you for coming. Thank you for, 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 for standing in, on, on this area of truth, this, like this foundational block of the faith, creation, and fighting for it against all the odds. You know, and uh, yeah, so it's a great honor to have you here. So let's uh, put our hands together. Welcome, Mark. Pastor Andre, thank you so very much. Uh, just a wonderful blessing for us to be here. You guys have spoiled us. I don't know if you know, but you've put us up for a couple of nights at the White House Guest House, and it is just stunning. And uh, amongst other ways in which you've spoiled us, and it's a joy to be here. I was in the same meeting uh, in 2003 at the University of Stellenbosch. Uh, Dr. Carl Whelan, the founder of our ministry, spoke there. And Pastor Andre, we compared notes and we were at that same meeting. And Carl still speaks very fondly of that meeting and the, the tremendous response from the young people that were there. And I've spoken in Shofar churches from Swakopmund to Durban and... Uh, just a few weeks ago, we had a doctor, uh, Professor Stuart Burgess out from Bristol University in the UK, uh, engineering design professor, and we did a seminar at University of Stellenbosch again, at Shofar there, and uh, just a blessed, blessed uh, time that we had, mainly with young folk, and that's one of the things that is such a wonderful thing about the Shofar Church, is lots of young people. We've ministered in schools here in East London, Hudson Park and uh, Merrifield, there are some smart kids in East London, believe me. Uh, they've challenged us. They've asked good questions. Uh, have been very receptive to questions that we've asked them. And we've had a, a great time with them. Right. Let me tell you a little bit about our ministry. Creation Ministries International. Uh, we have offices in seven countries around the world. And uh, we've got about 12 PhD scientists working for us full-time in different parts of the world. Uh, my colleague in Cape Town, Dr. Johan Kruger. 
PhD in zoology, former lecturer at Rand Afrikaans University, and then we've got many other supporting scientists in universities and in industry around the world. And we regard ourselves as a, uh, an information ministry, providing resources, equipping people to answer the very important questions relating to origins. And we distribute and share this information in many ways. Firstly, our website. Um, this, uh, just about any question you can think of to do with origins, you'll find on our website. We've got about 10,000 articles on that website going back about 30 years of creation research. There was a little boy, he had a question. He said, Mommy, where do men come from? And his mother knew her Bible, so she said to him, Well, God created the heavens and the earth in six days. And on day six, he took some of the dust of the ground, and out of it, he created the first man, Adam. And we're all descended from Adam. So he said, well, mommy, where do ladies come from? So she said, well, God knew that uh, Adam needed a wife, and on day six as well, he, took, he caused a, a deep sleep to come upon Adam. He took a chunk of flesh from his side, and out of it, he created the first lady, Eve, the mother of all living, the Bible tells us. So the little boy was happy with that, and he went off. But he woke up one morning a few days later and he said, Mommy, Mommy, I've got a pain in my side. I think I'm going to have a wife. <laughs> but you know, it is very important that as Christians, as believers, we're able to answer these important questions about origins. So our website, creation.com, a powerful free resource that you can use to answer questions. None of us have got all the answers, but certainly our website can be very helpful. We've also got uh, our info bites and what we do with this. If there's something going on in the world, a new fossil find, di dinosaur find, a new so-called hominin find, like hominaledi here, very soon one of our writers will uh, write an article and we send that out to people that are on our mailing list. And we're going to pass around some clipboards. And uh, if you'd like to subscribe, just give us your name, your email address, and your postal code. That's all we need on there. If we could come up to the front, got some helpers. Thank you very much. And just feel free to pass. It's a free resource. Any of you like free stuff? Amen. So if you'd like to subscribe, but otherwise feel free to pass it on. This is a very strange looking map I got off the, world, uh, off the internet a few years ago. And what they've done here, they've made the various regions of the world proportional to the number of immigrants to those regions over the last few decades. And you can see here just North America, Northwestern Europe, and Australia account for about 80% of immigrants worldwide over the last few decades. And we've got to ask the question, why are, is everybody wanting to go and live in those parts of the world? And I'm sure you could help me. Economic opportunities, medical infrastructure, freedom of religion, uh, educational opportunities, all of these things... And the question is, why are those regions of the world uniquely identified with these attributes that people are looking for? And I want to put it to you this morning that they were all substantially founded upon a Christian worldview. Never complete, never perfect, but enough of a Christian consensus to impact every area of family, tradition, culture, education, science, medicine, I could go on and on. And what was that worldview? A belief that God's word, the Bible, is the truth. For 1,800 years of Christian history, an acceptance, a belief in the biblical account of creation found in Genesis. 
And based on God's word is truth, Christian values of mercy, loving God, one man for one woman is the basis of marriage, a love for our neighbors, and the sanctity of life. And you know, there are even many non-believers that recognize the foundation of the Western world. Jürgen Habermas, a well-known German sociologist and philosopher, said this, egalitarian universalism, freedom, social solidarity, autonomous conduct of life, emancipation, individual morality of conscience, human rights, democracy, is the direct legacy of the Judaic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love. Everything else is just idle, postmodern talk. He's not a Christian. He comes from a Marxist background, and yet he recognizes the Judeo-Christian basis of the Western world. But the wheels are coming off, aren't they? All over the world. And a major reason for that is because the Christian worldview has been replaced by another one, that of secular humanism, the belief that man decides truth and not God, and built on that Uh, over the last few decades especially, an increasing acceptance of the secular humanist story of creation, which is evolution. And if man decides truth, that means that things like morality are not fixed. They're not absolute. And so we find increasing instances of abortion, racism, pornography, sexual perversion. And as Christians, we can be very, very concerned about those things, and we should be. But it begins down here with the idea that man decides truth and not God. And there's been no greater erosion of, us, of the Western worldview than our sense of who we are and who our neighbors are. You see, the Bible gives us a wonderful understanding of who we are, created in the image of God, male and female. He created us in His image. That's the reason why we laugh and love and communicate and invent things and paint and make wonderful music and do all these things that set us apart as unique from the animal kingdom because we are created in the image of the almighty, all-powerful God of the universe. We're not God, but we are something like Him. We're also fallen in the image of our ancestor Adam, but I'll speak about that more later, but that view of mankind has been substantially replaced by another one. A few years after publishing Origin of Species, Darwin wrote another book, The Scent of Man. And in it he said this, at some future period, not very distant, the civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races. And these ideas began to be promoted around the Western world. Scientists in Europe, like Ernst Haeckel, a very influential German scientist, would go on road shows. He was known as Darwin's Bulldog in Europe. And he would teach the public with posters like this, teaching this idea that we had evolved from ape-like creatures over hundreds of thousands of years and placing black people as some kind of intermediate between these ancestors and what he regarded as civilized human beings. And the world moved increasingly from believing that we were created in the image of God to this vertical idea of so-called civilized and savage races. And the world began to put these ideas into practice in North America and Australia, all over the world, right here in our backyard. Many people are not aware that the first genocide of the 20th century took place in German Southwest Africa, where in response to a very minor uprising amongst the Herero people, the Germans went from sending missionaries to, 
with the gospel of Jesus Christ to their colonies, to sending people like General Lothar von Trother, a social Darwinist. He believed in survival of the fittest, elimination of the weak. He issued a Vernichtungsbefehl, an extermination order. Remember Darwin's words that every Herero man, woman, and child were to be shot. And over the space of a few years from 1904, about 80% of the Herero nation were wiped out and about 40% of the Nama people. Directly in battle, forced into the Omeheke Desert and thousands and thousands in concentration camps in Luderitz and Swakopmund and, uh, and Vintuk. And all of it was justified and motivated in terms of social Darwinism. Race scientists came to Southwest Africa to conduct dubious experiments. The skulls of prisoners that died in the camps were boiled, scraped of the flesh, packed in crates and sent back to universities in Germany where many of those skulls remain. I wrote an article a few years ago for our creation magazine on this dreadful history. SABC2 did a documentary a few months ago, an excellent documentary on this history. And very interestingly, they brought out the Darwinian connection many times in that, do- in that documentary of a Darwinian worldview. And then I spoke in a chauffeur in Swakopmund uh, about three years ago. And while I was there, I took the opportunity of visiting the Herero concentration camp graveyard just outside of town. And you can just make out these little mounds of sand there are thousands of little unmarked graves stretching back to that, water, that wall in the distance there of people that died in just that one concentration camp in Swakopmund. But And all of this culminated in the horrors of the Second World War and the genocide against gypsies and Jews and homosexuals and, and handicapped people. And thank the Lord, at that time, evolutionary science took a step back from the racist implications of evolution. But our view of who we are and who our neighbors are hasn't improved much based on evolution. Do you want to fire up that video, see if you can get that video running? If you just click on the picture itself, it should start to operate. Otherwise, we'll move on. Okay, maybe it's not going to work. This is uh, Professor Lawrence Krauss. He's an atheist uh, scientist in America, teaching his students, talking about how we've all uh, got here. We're just stardust that has coalesced over billions and billions of years. And he concludes by saying, forget about Jesus. The stars died that we can be here today. That's the type of worldview that is indoctrinating our young people today on television, in the media, in school, and of course in college and university. Let's keep moving. It's not a problem. There we go. All right. We're in business again. Thank you. And and this is what our young people are faced with at school. Um, He has some classmates speaking in between classes, and he he says, you seem a bit down. Your science class went on for ages. What happened? So she said, teacher said, we're nothing special. We came from pond scum. We're just evolved apes. So other friend asked, what are they teaching in your next class? (laughs) Self-esteem. Now, you know, do you see the disconnect there? We should be teaching our young folk to have a healthy sense of themselves and of their neighbors. But where do you get that from? If we got here by this random process of time and chance, cosmic accident over millions and millions of years. And you know, these ideas have consequences. 
There we go. George Barner, the Christian Research Group in America, have found that 60% of young people that are active in their churches during their teenage years fail to continue with their spirituality, their Christian spiritual walk after they leave home, go to college, uh, being indoctrinated in evolution. Young people are smart. Most of them realize that there's something wrong. The Bible and evolution cannot both be true, and many of them think the Bible is irrelevant and walk away from their faith. So we might think, well, doesn't science prove that evolution is true? And therefore, as Christians, we have to somehow fit evolution into the Bible. But you know, this book claims to be the Word of God, the inspired Word of God. We shouldn't make science our authority and fit it into the Word of God. We should be evaluating the constantly changing ideas of science in the light of God's Word. And if they, are, if they contradict, then we put that aside. But let's, we put the claims of men aside, but make the Word of God our authority. But let's look a little bit at the science. And this is an incredibly important principle. And as I was speaking to the young people, I was saying to them at schools uh, this, this week, I said, look, don't take my word for it. But do some critical thinking for yourselves. Evaluate the biblical model as well as the other model that you're being fed and see which makes the most sense. But you know, there are two broad categories of science and the way in which science is done. The first is experimental or operational science. This is science that's done in a laboratory out in the field. It can be repeated, tested, experimented upon. It doesn't matter whether a scientist is a Christian or an atheist. They'll do the same experiments, make the same observations, and broadly get the same results. This is what put men on the moon, gave us cell phones and iPads, wonderful advances in medical technology like your MRI scanner, magnetic resonance imaging. Who here has had an MRI scan? Many, many of you. Do you know that the primary inventor of that technology is a Dr. Raymond Damadian, a Bible-believing, creation-believing scientist? Don't let anybody ever tell you that it's unscientific to believe in the biblical creation model. But that type of, that comes from experimental science. But there's another broad category of science, and that's historical science. That's looking at evidence in the present, and we've all got the same evidence, the same facts, like this ammonite fossil here. And it's trying to tell a story about the past, about the origin of something, when it lived, how it died, how it fossilized. And the young people at schools were able to tell me this. Can we experiment on the past? And of course, the answer is no. We cannot repeat the past. We tell a story when it comes to origin science or historical science. And our worldview plays in a hugely important role in the way in which we interpret the evidence regarding the past, our worldview, our presuppositions, our biases. Let me just quickly illustrate this. I'm sure most of us followed the Oscar Pistorius trial. And what did we see there? We saw experts, forensic experts for the prosecution and for the defense that had both seen the same evidence, the same bullet holes, blood spatter, damaged door and cricket bat and so on. And they both gave different reconstructions of that terrible night of the crime. Why? They're not lying. It's just that the evidence does not speak for itself. We interpret the evidence about the past based 
upon our biases. And you know, there are some evolutionists that recognize this. Ernst Meyer, one of the most influential evolutionists of the 20th century, he said this, evolutionary biology, in contrast with physics and chemistry, is a historical science. The evolutionist attempts to explain events and processes that have already taken place. And the foundation, the beginnings of modern science were done within a Christian worldview. Just about every father of your various fields of science, Maxwell, Faraday, Kepler, um, uh, uh, the most famous of all, Isaac Newton, these were Bible-believing Christians. They believed that the biblical account of origins was true. And they looked at the world through a framework of understanding that the Bible gives us, a framework of history. We call this the seven, uh, the seven seas of history, beginning with a supernatural creation by God a few thousand years ago, including Adam and Eve, our ancestors. Shortly after creation came the curse, corruption, due to the sin, the disobedience of Adam. And then about 1,600 years after creation, in response to ongoing sin, rebellion, violence in the earth, sexual perversion, some kind of demonic activity going on, God sent a year-long catastrophic judgment flood on this earth. And then a couple of hundred years after the flood, God confused people's languages as they continued to disobey him, build this temple to the heavens, some kind of man-made religion. God confused their languages, causing different, maybe different families to abandon this project at Babel and to begin to spread out on the face of the earth, leading to the various people groups that we find around the world today. That's the confusion of languages at Babel. And then 2,000 years ago, the eternally begotten Son of God, the Creator Himself, took upon Him the form of a man, came into His creation to die upon the cross for what went wrong back there and to make possible a future consummation, a future restoration of all things. And that was the worldview of some of your early geologists, somebody like Nikolaus Steno, as he looked at the sedimentary rock layers that cover most of the earth. He interpreted those rock layers as confirmation of the biblical flood of Noah's day, that most of those sedimentary rock layers had been laid down during that year-long catastrophic flood of Noah. But that worldview has been substantially replaced, especially in science, by another one. And there's only two options. Either God created the heavens and the earth, or somehow the heavens and the earth created themselves. And that belief system is philosophical naturalism, which begins with a Big Bang at the moment. By the way, Big Bang only became popular in the 60s, and it's busy disappearing again. Hundreds and hundreds of secular scientists are saying the Big Bang doesn't work we need to develop a new story, a new cosmology. But that's the current uh, do dominant one, billions of years. And here on earth, the process of death, suffering, bloodshed and disease over millions of years, eventually leading to the existence of man. And an early believer in that kind of model was Charles Lyell, a Scottish lawyer, a geologist. And he said in, in private correspondence, that his goal was to free the science from Moses. He no longer wanted to interpret the evidence of geology through the scriptures. And the question is, that statement there, is that a scientific statement or a philosophical statement? 
It's a philosophical statement. And he began to reinterpret, deliberately reinterpret the rock layers. The idea that these fine lamina were laid down one at a time, maybe one per year, over vast periods of time, leading to a, uh, this idea of hundreds of thousands of years of earth history. So we might think, well, what is the problem? What's the problem if that is a record of hundreds of thousands of years? Well, there is a problem. Because it's not just rock layers. What do we find in those rock layers? What do we find there? We find fossils. And what are fossils? Creatures that have lived in the past, died, and their remains or their shapes have been preserved in the rock layers. So that is also a record of death, suffering, cancer, carnivory. And we're going to get back to that subject just now. But I want us to think, let's all put on evolutionary glasses. And try and interpret the formation of fossils. Uh, this is an ammonite fossil, two halves of the same fossil. Uh, evolutionists tell us they went extinct 65 million years ago. They look very similar to your nautiloids, which we still find in the oceans today. And here's a biology textbook from Australia. And they're teaching the formation of fossils. And here's the story that's being told. A fish swimming along in the water dies, sinks to the bottom, covered in silt, that process repeats itself over and over again. Look at the background here, the river carrying the silt down to the ocean. And there we go from high mountains to low mountains. So the story that's being told is that this is a very slow, gradual, uniformitarian process over vast periods of time. Does that reflect reality? I've been asking the kids, uh, any of you gone scuba diving or snorkeling? Any of you here done some snorkeling, scuba diving? We live by the ocean. Ever seen thousands of dead fish lying on the bottom of the ocean waiting to get covered in silt? No? no? What happens when a creature dies? It bloats, it floats, scavengers eat it, and in a short space of time, there's nothing left of it. So what do we need for fossils to form? We need a healthy living organism, a fish or a bird, a mammal, dinosaur. We need that organism to be rapidly trapped in a mortar of mud and minerals to keep out the oxygen, keep out the scavengers, keep out bacteria, and allow enough time for mineralization, for fossilization to occur. That fossil that I'm passing around there, that's a totally mineralized fossil. Your shell, all your biological material has been replaced by minerals. So let's put on a different set of glasses now. Let's put on that biblical set of glasses that we spoke about just now and ask ourselves the question, why do we find billions of dead things buried in rock layers that have been laid down by water all over the earth? Fossil beds on every continent. Uh, nearby here in the Karoo, we live up in Langaban, the West Coast Fossil Park. Every continent. Marine fossils on the very highest layers of Mount Everest. Which of those seven seas of history gives us an amazing explanation for why we find those fossils all over the earth. Which of the seven seas? The third sea, the catastrophic flood of Noah, where the Bible tells us that all the fountains of the great deep broke up and it rained catastrophically all over the globe for 40 days and 40 nights. But look at that. It's not just rain. The fountains of the deep broke up. Earthquakes, volcanoes, tsunamis, the release of underground minerals, water, steam, ash. Lava, providing an incredible explanatory framework for why we find these vast fossil beds all over the world. 
And the Bible goes on to say that every land-living, air-breathing animal and bird and man, except for those preserved on the ark with Noah, perished in that terrible, dreadful flood. Of course, marine creatures being in their own environment, many of them would have survived, but countless billions of them would have also perished and many of them been caught in the fossil layers as well. And so fossils are an amazing confirmation of the accuracy, the authority of God's word. Here's an interesting fossil. It's an, a mother ichthyosaur. It's an extinct marine reptile uh, fossil in a museum in Germany. And why do we call her a mother? Well, she's been fossilized in the process of giving birth. There's a baby still in the birth canal there. Evidently, there's the remains of another three inside her. Now, fossilization is a process that takes place over thousands of years. Have any of you mothers had extended labor? You know, that's almost like, it's almost like a snapshot in time. It's like a photograph, isn't it? Confirming the fact that this must have been a very, very rapid process. The holy grail of fossils for evolutionists are um, uh, so-called transitional fossils, something in between your major groups of, of animals, in between birds, uh, in between reptiles and, and, uh, and birds, in between fish and amphibians and, and so on. And Darwin was very troubled in his day that there were no transitional fossils, but he believed that countless, countless numbers would be found in the future. Today, 160 years later, there are a handful of claimed transitional fossils that even other evolutionists dispute and say, no, those are just unusual birds or reptiles or what have you. A few years ago, uh, National Geographic magazine, they did a 10-page full-color article trumpeting Archaeoraptor as a transitional fossil. Well, a short time later, it was discovered that like most things today, Archaeoraptor was made in China. An enterprising Chinaman had taken five different fossils, put them together, and sold them, I hope for lots of money, to a gullible scientist. Now, a while later... Scientists recognized that this was a fraud, and National Geographic printed a small retraction. And so evolutionists today know that that was a fraud, but that fossil had been seen by many scientists before they recognized it was a fraud. And so what I'm trying to point out to you is the incredibly subjective nature of interpreting the past, interpreting the fossil record, and so on. What about dating methods, your radioisotope dating methods? Don't they tell us that the earth is millions of years old? Your decay of radioisotopes, uranium to lead, rubidium to strontium, potassium argon, and so on. Do you know that there are some of your radioisotopes that indicate that the earth is only thousands of years old, not millions of years old? There are various processes indicating a biblical age of the earth. There are other processes, these radioisotopes, that seem to give results of millions or billions of years. But they are all based on this principle here. Let's test your maths. Let's say you open a bathroom door, you walk into the bathroom, and you immediately see that there's 100 liters of water in the bathtub, and the tap is running at 10 liters per minute. How long has that process been going on for? How long? 10 minutes. Okay. Phew. Uh, your maths is correct. Thank you. But let's ask ourselves, 
a question about the assumptions that we use to work out that result. Firstly, was the bathtub half empty or half full, depending on your personality? Uh, when that process started, was water removed or added during that process? Did the flow rate increase or decrease or was it turned off? Water shedding, load shedding? Uh, you see, you were not there in the past. You look at these processes and these quantities in the present and based upon your assumptions about the past, and remember the past can't be tested, can't be experimented on, you work out the result. That applies to all of your processes going on, whether they favor a biblical chronology of thousands of years or a Big Bang chronology of billions of years. They're all based on untestable, unrepeatable assumptions about the past. Well, how could we test to see if these dating methods are accurate? What about if we could get hold of a rock of known age and send it off to a dating laboratory and see what results we get? Over the last 25 years or so, this has been done many, many times. One example, Mount St. Helens in Washington State in America. That big uh, crater there was formed in the huge uh, eruption in 1980. A smaller eruption in 1986 formed this lava dome here. Ten years later, some scientists went and took samples from this dome, being very careful to avoid contamination. They sent it off to a radioisotope dating laboratory who used the potassium argon dating method, a very common dating method you'll read in lots of the scientific literature, and they got results back of between 350,000 and 2.8 million years old for rocks that were 10 years old at the time. And so the question is, if we cannot trust these dating methods for rocks of, un of known age, how can we possibly trust them for rocks of unknown age? Let's rather trust God's eyewitness account of origins just a few thousand years ago. Let me move on. Uh, dinosaurs, the rock stars of evolution. I uh, did some dino talks at, uh, at one of the schools the other day, and um, there is a radioisotope that is found in, in living things and biological uh, matter and pieces of wood and bones and things like that. That's carbon-14. We've all got the radioisotope of carbon-14 in us. Oh, did you know we're all a bit radioactive? But it's, it's one part per trillion, so don't get uh, too worried. Now, carbon-14 decays to nitrogen-14. It's got a half-life of 5,730 years. Now, all scientists know, whether you're a Christian or an atheist, whatever, all know that after a maximum theoretical period of 50,000 to 100,000 years, there should be no carbon-14 left in an object, in a bone or a piece of wood. There should be no detectable carbon-14 left. Now, if somebody believes in evolution, would they think of looking for carbon-14 in dinosaur bones? No. Dinosaurs we're told went extinct 65 million years ago, no chance of finding carbon-14. Well, just a few years ago, some European scientists took a number of dinosaur bone samples. They looked for carbon-14. They found carbon-14 in every single one of those samples that yielded dates or ages of between 20,000 and 40,000 years old. Now, the dinosaur fossils, most of the dinosaur fossils that we find in the world date about four and a half thousand years ago. Dinosaurs that were killed during that catastrophic flood of Noah's day. 
this, these ages here are based on the same bathtub assumptions that we spoke about just now. But you see how one da- dating method totally contradicts other dating methods. Which one do we believe? Again, let's believe and take God at his word. There's been no greater challenge to evolutionary storytelling over the last few decades than what is coming from information science, from genetics, biology, and so on, and our knowledge of the cell. You see, Darwinian evolution, general theory of evolution, says that we've all evolved from some uh, simple organism over hundreds of millions of years to become men and microbiologists and mice and all sorts of things. And so that involves a huge amount of increase in information to get from a single-celled organism to something like a horse. A horse has got eyes and ears and hooves and her fur, all sorts of things that that bacterium does not have. And that requires lots of new information in the genome. And what do we mean by information in the DNA? Well, let's do a bit of a thought exercise here. Let's say you get a bowl of soup like this, uh, alphabet, alphabet soup. You'd think nothing of it. You'd think, well, maybe that alphabet was randomly thrown in or it was spat out by a vending machine. But what would you think if you got a bowl of soup like this? What would you think? Or what would you know if you got a bowl of soup like that? Somebody's trying to tell you something. You would immediately know that somebody intelligent did that. That the properties of water and vegetables and, and, uh, and uh, uh, pasta cannot possibly arrange themselves into that specified complexity, that information message, you would know somebody intelligent did that. And of course, the most intelligent person in the universe after God is mom. And she's telling you, enjoy my soup, but wash up after you. Now, we looked at 20 bits of information, roughly 20 bits of information, and we instinctively knew only somebody intelligent could have done that. What about the three and a half billion bits of information in the human genome at the, in the nucleus of every one of the trillions of cells in the human body? Spelling out the instructions, spelling out the recipe for who we are and for the cell to make us. The idea that that sequence, that uh, accurate, vital sequence, came about by time and chance goes against all experiment and observation and everything we know about biological and information science. It can only come from extreme intelligence. Do you know, if you could put together enough DNA just to fill the head of a pin, that would contain enough information to, co- to fill a pile of books from the earth to the moon, 500 piles in just a pinhead of DNA. It is the most elegant and complex uh, uh, and mind-blowing software coding information system known to mankind. Scientists are still trying to get uh, to, uh, to understand the depths of that information system in the DNA of life. And the proposed mechanism by Darwin was natural selection. Your neo-Darwinists recognize that natural selection creates nothing new. It only takes from existing information in the genome. It doesn't create the new information that is requ- required 
for information. And so your, your evolutionists today say that that new information comes from, uh, from um, mutations, from copying errors in the handing down of genetic information. And it's copying errors, mutations that lead to terrible diseases, genetic diseases. Most of them are neutral. Some of them are extremely harmful. But evolutionists believe that just sometimes these mutations give good information. And, uh, uh, sorry, I gave it away there. I don't have my computer in front of me. But, uh, and, you know, normally if we get one good, good set of genes from our mother and one good, a bad set of genes from our father, a mutated gene, it's normally the good gene that will express itself. If we get the same bad gene from mom and dad, that's when often these terribly debilitating uh, diseases express themselves. That's why to interbreed closely related creatures like dogs and people, there's a higher chance of genetic diseases. And of course, if we closely interbreed dogs, uh, you can end up with horrible things happening. And uh, I've got a picture here of a terribly badly interbre- in- inbred dog, uh, but I've already given it away. There it is there. <laughs> there's, there's an inbred dog. So, so evolutionists know that most of these mutations, these genetic mutations, are harmful. And that if, if it happens at all, uh, useful information, and in fact, they can't even find real evidence for useful, beneficial mutations. And this gave rise to the idea of junk DNA, that most of our genome uh, codes for useless, uh, it's useless leftover code from our evolutionary history, pseudogenes, uh, this is the idea of somebody like Francis Collins, who used to head up Biologos and the Human Genome Product uh, Project. He's, he believes that we've evolved over hundreds of thousands of years from ape-like ancestors based on this belief system. Well, guess what? God doesn't make junk. And scientists are increasingly finding just layer upon layer of purpose and design and information and complexity in the genome. This scientist here, John Mattick, says that this idea of junk DNA may well go down as one of the biggest mistakes in the history of molecular biology. All it meant was that we didn't yet know what the function was of those different parts of the DNA code. Well, why are people so unwilling to accept the evidence from science of an almighty, all-knowing creator God? And I'm not saying this, what I'm going to say now, I'm not applying that everybody that believes in evolution has got this motivation. But, you know, but all of us are a, you know, to some degree we are a product of our environment, of our culture, of our education, of the media. But this question of origins is too important to just take the word for somebody out there. It's too important to just take my word. But we do need to investigate and to do some critical thinking for ourselves. But you know, the Apostle Peter said 2,000 years ago, he said that in the last days, scoffers would come that would deny two things. Firstly, that by the word of God, the heavens were evolved. They would deny a supernatural creation by God. And secondly, they would deny that the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. They would deny the judgment flood of Noah's day. Why is that? 
Well, we get some clues from guys like Richard Dawkins who says that Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. So you can reject God and say in your heart that there is no God, but you still need some story to answer the big questions in life. And Darwinism is that story of how we got here. Unfortunately, over the last hundred years or so, many well-meaning Christians have tried to fit evolution into the Bible and have proposed various ideas. They all have massive scientific problems, but they also have major doctrinal problems as well. And you know your atheists know this. Somebody like uh, Bill Provine, uh, atheist professor, biology professor, he died last year. He made this statement, one can have a religious view that is compatible with evolution only if that religious view is indistinguishable from atheism. Let's look at a couple of the reasons why that is so. Let's look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that we should not perish but have everlasting life through faith in Christ. So immediately the question is, well, why are we dying? Why is there death and suffering and cruelty and all of these things? Paul says that by one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. Who is that one man? One man is Adam. And according to Paul, what came first, death or sin? Sin came first and death followed. And so Paul is just referring to the book of Genesis, where God created the heavens and the earth, and when he had finished creating on day six, including the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, he looked at his finished creation, and he said, it is very, very good. If we try and fit evolution or even deep time into the Bible, it means that by the time God had finished creating, including Adam and Eve, he was looking on a Garden of Eden, sitting upon a record of death, pain, suffering, disease, cancer, carnivory. And God looked at that and said, it is very good. Who of you here think that death or suffering is good? None of us. We know if we lose a loved one or even a loved pet, that there's something wrong. It's not meant to be that way. And God agrees with us. Genesis tells us God created a perfect earth without death and suffering. He put his federal head of his creation, Adam, into this amazing environment. And he said to Adam, Adam, go wild, enjoy, eat of the fruit of the trees, the herbs of the field. God also gave a herbivorous diet to animals there in Genesis chapter 1. But as a moral being created in the image of God, God gave Adam one restriction, to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know the tragic history. Deceived by Satan, uh, Eve ate, she gave to Adam, he ate, and this universe began to die. And as their descendants, we all come into this world spiritually needing to be born again because of our descent from Adam and Eve. But we also began to die physically as well because we're descended from Adam and Eve. Do you know that the, the... process of apoptosis, programmed cell death, is already occurring inside in the developing embryo of the unborn child because of our descent from Adam and Eve. And so the Bible calls death an enemy. Why would God call death an enemy if he has used millions of years of death and suffering as his creative process to bring 
all life to the world. I'm going to move on. Are we trying to get finished pretty, pretty quick uh, now? Do we, how much longer have we got, do you think, Pastor? Get, let me, let's try to get moving. You know, a, a very important question on, on, on marriage today. When Jesus was challenged on marriage, where did he go? He went back to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2. And he said, from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. He made them husband and wife back here. Well, if evolution is true, Jesus should have said billions after the Big Bang, God made them male and female because man and woman only came on the scene right at the end of that process. And so these are important questions, aren't they, about origins. And the Bible calls on us to be equipping ourselves as believers to cast down arguments that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. And we can be equipping ourselves. And our young people have questions. Uh, Questions like, where did the races come from? Come tonight if you want to hear that message. Uh, Who made God? Why don't we find dinosaurs in the Bible? I'll give you a clue. We actually do. And uh, why does a loving God allow suffering and death? Who of you here can answer all of those questions? Put up your hand. Have a look around you. Nobody's putting up their hands. Because none of us have got all the answers. And that's why we are passionate as a ministry of making answers available. Through our magazines, a creation magazine, we get amazing uh, testimonies for how God has used that magazine in people's lives. And if you'd like to subscribe, we're again going to pass around some clipboards in a moment. One year subscription is 200, uh, 200 rand and you'll get four during the course of the year. Uh, and if you subscribe today, we'll, take, we'll give you a free gift, a free back issue that you can take with you. A three-year subscription is 520 rand, and subscribe today. You can take a back issue with you, a free double DVD set. And if you pick up your phone and dial now, for a three-year subscription, we'll also give you this DVD, How Darwin Got It Wrong, Dr. John Sanford, a world-renowned geneticist who shows that we're going downhill. We're not evolving, we are devolving. Very interesting DVD. So if you'd like to subscribe, tick whether you want to one year or three year. For a few rand more, you can add a digital subscription as well as the printed subscription. Give us all your details there and uh, pull off the little coupon and take it to the, the desk, the cash desk. We do have card facilities if you need them. And uh, if you want to come forward and just start at the front here again, just feel free to pass them on and we'll give you your free gifts. Very quickly, some of our other resources, the Creation Answers book, it answers 60 of the most asked questions that we get as a ministry over the years, uh, 30-odd years of our ministry. Evolution's Achilles Heels, one of our newest books, nine PhD scientists showing the incredible weaknesses in the evolutionary science in their strongest evidences that they present. That's also available as a DVD, but there we've got 15 PhDs taking part in that. Evolutie Verlea, ons het heel wat van ons boeken in Afrikaans en Engels beskikbaar. Hier is geskryf dier Jonathan Safati. He's a Messianic Jew. He came from a Jewish background. Former New Zealand chess champion. Brilliant mind. And... Um, he works for us full-time in America today. He's a, a physical chemist. Uh, discounted packs, two books and a DVD. Jylle kan het ook in Afrikaans opmaak as jylle wil. 
die twee boeken, die Afrikaanse weergave en een van ons uh, 120 rand DVD's, en jylle kan die, die selfde prijs kry, ek denk is 240 rand, of 260 rand, 200, so iets, vir die afslag pakkie. Uh, again, Jonathan Safety, The Greatest Hoax on Earth, response to Richard Dawkins' book, The Greatest Show on Earth, Busting Myths, 30 PhD scientists, how they came to turn from believing in evolution to believing in the wonderful sense and logic of the biblical creation model. Very, very important subject today. And it's, it doesn't, it's not gay bashing, it's scriptural uh, and scientific and something that we do need to be thinking about and how that question is directly related to origins. It's English and Afrikaans. Alien intrusion, the connection between a belief and evolution and UFOs, Aliens, alien abductions, all of these things. Fascinating book. Any of you seen the latest UFO caught on tape? Any of you seen it? Would you like to see the UFO caught on tape? Yeah? Here it is. Books on dinosaurs. Our DVD, Why Does a Good God Allow Bad Things? A question that is believers. We've been challenged with that question over and over again. Discounted kiddies packs, or you can buy those books separately as well, or in a discounted pack. Christianity for the Skeptics, discounted packs of DVDs, uh, 10 DVDs for about a 10%, uh, 50% discount. Uh, documentaries, the, the Voyage That Shook the World, uh, Story of Darwin and His Voyage on the Beagle. Uh, very interesting documentary. Let me finish by just saying this. You know, this isn't about winning an argument. And biblical creation believers have powerful arguments for the authority of God's word. But we could win an argument and lose a soul. You know, this is about establishing the authority, the truth of God's word, and finding opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. And so I'm not even trying to say to you that you need to believe in biblical creation to be saved. But if we think about the gospel and the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of sin, it all goes back to origins. If we think of Jesus Christ himself, the, we're all descended from Adam and Eve, and that's why we are spiritually dead, needing to be born again through faith in Christ, why we're physically dying. But, you know, we're also all related to somebody else. And that is Jesus Christ himself. The Bible tells us that the eternally begotten Son of God was born of the seed of the woman. In the Gospel of Luke, we're given his biological ancestry through his mother Mary, through King David, Abram, all the way back to Adam and Eve. That he could be born of the seed of the woman, just like all of us here as our family, the perfect God and the perfect man, that he could be our family redeemer. He could be our substitute on the cross to pay the price for our sin. If evolution is true, Adam and Eve were just some kind of mythical creatures. They never existed. And so that undermines the, the doctrine, the theology of sin and salvation. So these are important questions. And I pray 
that you'll take them seriously, you'll give them consideration. And if you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you might begin to think through these things and take seriously the claims of Christ on your life. God bless you. Thank you very much, Pastor Andre, for this opportunity.